Hello there and welcome into another edition of The Intersection with conversation about a variety of topics, including news, information, and lifestyles approached from a Christian worldview perspective. My first two guests have a rather daring approach to elements of the Christian life. For starters, you'll be hearing from Melissa Spolstra, who dares us to walk in hope with principles based on the book of Jeremiah. Next, Kate Battistelli offers the challenge to dare to trust God for what may seem impossible in our lives. She is the mother of Christian music artist Francesca Battistelli and has a background in music and theater. Then it's Becky Kapitsky taking aim at crankiness in the life of a mother, offering biblically-centered encouragement to ward off those influences that can get moms off track. And coming up on this edition of The Intersection, from the Ministry of Open Doors USA, David Curry is back to discuss the dangerous situation that Christians face in the nation of Nigeria and how his organization is working on behalf of persecuted believers. Then more conversation highlights from the 2019 National Religious Broadcasters Convention in Anaheim, California. Ron Bracey is a former Air Force pilot who has seen tragedy, but who has held on to the grace of God. You'll gain a sense of his perspective. Finally, Matt Williams teaches God's Word at Talbot School of Theology at Biola University in California. He shared about some of the components of forgiveness as taught and modeled by Jesus. This is The Intersection, a production of The Meeting House, and I'm Bob Crittenden. Melissa Spolstra is the author of a book entitled Dare to Hope, Living Intentionally in an Unstable World, based on the book of Jeremiah. She offers biblical principles for living with hope in Christ, from a recent Meeting House conversation, here is Melissa Spolstra. Well, I think I just look, and Jeremiah had so many reasons for despair. You know, he's called the weeping prophet. We get a glimpse into his prayer life and see that he's struggled with some depression because he lived in a culture that was really turning away from God. And in fact, the days of Jeremiah in many ways uh, echo in and kind of parallel to our days. But I think what's amazing about Jeremiah is that even though he said, he wrote the book of Lamentations as well as the book of Jeremiah. And in Lamentations, he says, you know, everything I longed for from the Lord was lost. Basically, my circumstances didn't really change. They were really hard. But then he pens the words, yet I still dare to hope when I remember this. And he talks about the steadfast love of the Lord never ceasing, his mercies never end, them being new every morning and pointing to the faithfulness of God. So I think the message there is that he hitched his hope wagon to the character of God rather than to his circumstances. And I think for us today, it's a very relevant message as we're all struggling with difficult circumstances, but where are we placing our hope? Yeah, not a not a lot of differences between Jeremiah's day and some of the cultural trends that we're seeing these days. Elaborate on that, if you would, please. Well, there's kind of four things that stuck out to me just as I continued to read and study a little bit of the background. I mean, in Jeremiah's day, it's a day of uh, political globalization, meaning that Babylon was coming in and really invading every area and trying to bring everyone back to Babylon and resettling people in different towns and trying to really eradicate cultural distinctives and make everyone mm. kind of look the same. Then it's also a time, certainly for the nation of Judah, for uh, economic crisis, and that was partially because they were indebted to other nations. They had tried to pay off Egypt to come in and help them against Babylon. You know, God, through Jeremiah, is calling them to trust in him and surrender to him and to look to him, but they're looking everywhere else. You know, they're trying to fix it, you know, in, in human methods. And so it's economic crisis for the nation because of this national debt, because someone's got to pay that out, and it's the people. 
and yet in the midst of the time of economic crisis, it, there's this social materialism. I mean, Jeremiah said several times, it's repeated, from the least to the greatest, their lives were ruled by greed. And I think, wow, does that resonate with our culture that when we have these reasons for despair, when life feels unstable, we have this tendency to look to stuff to try to fill that ache inside, and, and it's a counterfeit. And then lastly, I'd just say it's, it's a, it was a time of religious, not just tolerance, but plurality, meaning that anything goes as long as everything goes. So monotheism was what was really came, the people came against, the belief that there's one God and everyone is accountable to him. That didn't fly in Jeremiah's day. And I think we're more and more living in a culture where that is an oppositional message. Well, obviously, Jeremiah had a very high-profile ministry in the midst of these four factors that you just outlined. As we consider his example and how he responded to what was taking place in the culture, what are some of the the apparent lessons that you saw that we can actually integrate into our own lives? I mean, the fact that Jeremiah lived with hope in such a difficult time, I just— you know, God kind of just took and lifted with his holy highlighter off the page for me, just hmm. six things uh, that I saw that Jeremiah did. And, and you know, first of all, he surrendered to God's way over over logic, like everyone else around him, all the voices around him were trying to use their human strength. And Jeremiah had faith, he surrendered to God. And then rejecting counterfeits was the kind of second main theme there. Uh, that there were all these idolatrous counterfeit gods that everyone was seeking after. And for you and I in our culture, you know, I don't think we're setting up little idols. I haven't seen too many I Love Veil t-shirts going around, you know. And so, But rather than look and say uh, idolatry is not a problem for us, we can say what does idolatry look like for us? What are our counterfeits? What are the things we elevate above God or put in the place of God? And to see those for what they are. And then third thing was listening. Uh, man, over and over and over is this word. The Hebrew word is shema, to listen, to hear intelligently, to listen to God. And with so many voices in our culture, so many you know, information coming through screens and billboards and just coming at us all the time to be able to listen to God's voice in the midst of all those other voices. Uh, is is the path one of the pathways to hope? So those are kind of the first three. Melissa Spolstra here on the intersection. You can find out more by going to the website Melissa Spolstra S P O E L S T R A dot com. Next up on this edition of the intersection, it's Kate Battistelli, mother to Christian music artist Francesca Battistelli. She discussed some elements of her life story in music and theater, and lessons learned about trusting God. She's written a book entitled The God Dare, Will You Choose to Believe the Impossible? From that recent conversation, this is Kate Battistelli. You're right. The apple doesn't fall far from the tree. She comes by it naturally. But my husband and I were involved in that world before we met the Lord. And we were really doing it for our own fame and fortune. I mean, I just wanted to be a Broadway star and win a Tony Award. But after I left, I was with the National Tour of the King and I for all, almost three years, about a thousand performances. And when, when I left, my husband and I got married, and the next year we got saved. I was almost 30 when I got saved, so I came to the Lord a bit later in life. And then the Lord called us out of that world. He asked us to lay that down 
and we were just naive enough and young enough Christians to say, well, this, this is definitely God. We're going to follow and obey. And that's kind of what I call a God dare when he dares you to just take that 90 degree turn, that do that crazy thing that just doesn't make any sense. When you've worked your whole life in one direction and God says, nope, you're going this way, but we did it. And one of the neat things about when you do that, when you obey the Lord, we, we just have seen him take that through Francesca's life into the next generation. Because if you're, I think if we're doing it right as parents, our ceiling becomes our children's floor. And Mm -hmm. we've seen that with her and she's, she's doing it to make the Lord's name famous, not to make herself famous. So it's an interesting little twist that God did in our lives. And as you mentioned, the the King and I, you had the opportunity to play opposite Yul Brenner, as I understand it. Was that on the national tour or was that on Broadway? That was on the national tour. It was a Broadway national tour. Yeah. And I actually went out on the tour as the understudy for Anna. And I was in the chorus for a few months. And, you know, when you're an understudy, you, you know your part backwards and forwards, but you never really expect to go on because basically understudies are insurance policies just in case something happens. <laughs> sure. Well, about three, about three months into the run of the show, the leading lady got pneumonia, and I got to go on for a couple weeks for her, which was terrifying because, you know, Yul Brynner, I don't know if everybody knows who he is, but uh, anybody who's ever seen the Ten Commandments, he was Pharaoh in Ten Commandments. He was the original king and the king and I, mm-hmm. the original movie. So it, he was intimidating to me, and I was a mere 26 at the time, so I was quite young, going out, doing this role, and then after two weeks, the leading lady came back to the show, and I went back to the chorus, because that's what you do. But they didn't really get along very well, so what happened a couple months, a couple weeks later, they ended up buying out her two-year contract, giving me the lead in the show, and I was a nobody in New York. Yulbrenner could have chosen anyone in New York or LA or anyone in the world to come do that part. And he picked me. I mean, it made no sense. And I see it now as just sort of a prophetic picture of God beginning to draw me, you know, and just, it, it, it just, the whole thing was so crazy. Our, our story is so, so different from, from many people, but, um, but it was a, is an interesting, fun, exciting time. I ended up getting to do the show for almost three years. So what is the connection of that experience? As you mentioned, you really, you got saved a while after that. So how did that connect with that original God dare that you experienced? Well, I think our, 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 what I really call a God dare is when God just dares you to that crazy thing that he drops in your spirit or your heart. And you think, there's no way, God, that's impossible. I can't do that. So that was really after we got saved. We got, we got married in 1983, saved in 84, had Fr- Francesca in 85, and then it was about two years later. We were living in Manhattan at the time, and God called us, just called us out of that world, told us to lay down what we had been striving for for all these years and moved to New Jersey. We had a home business. We started homeschooling for Annie when she was old enough. And then we moved to Florida for 20 years. And it was just, you know, just those 90 degree turns that God throws into your life that you're not expecting. But when you obey, there's always fruit. But typically it's hard to obey because if he's calling you to something, it's usually going to take some courage. It's going to take stepping out of your comfort zone. And we all like to be comfortable, right? We all want to be in that comfort zone. But when God asks you to do something that's outside of that, 
that's where the world-changing things really begin to happen. Kate Battistelli here on The Intersection, and you can find her online at katebattistelli.com. Next on The Intersection, it's Becky Kapitsky, who offers some encouragement for mothers based on her book, The Cranky Mom Fixed, Get a Happier, More Peaceful Home by Slaying the Momster in All of Us. Biblically-centered encouragement now from Becky Kapitsky. The cranky mom comes out for a variety of reasons, one of which is the kid's behavior. That's certainly not the only reason. And I like to encourage women to always check their own hearts because we can't be blaming our kids for our own attitudes. They may trigger something in us, but we need to check our own hearts first. But when the kids are in the house, naturally we're going to rub up against each other from time to time. And so summertime is one of the heights for being cranky or for being triggered or being frustrated and it can come for a variety of reasons partly because the kids are in the house maybe we've got crazy schedules running everybody everywhere to softball and to karate and to summer camp and and all of these things can create the kind of environment where a woman is naturally going to get frustrated and tripped up a little bit from time to time well i want you to elaborate as you mentioned that moms you're encouraging moms to check their own hearts not necessarily blaming the kids and really not assigning blame anywhere and moms are not to really receive condemnation here but you do encourage moms to check their hearts for maybe some areas in which they can make themselves cranky so elaborate how you really see this and how how you have have concluded that this is you know that this is something that can occur Yes, absolutely. I love what you said, that we're not talking about condemnation here. Any time yeah. that, that God put pinpoints an area for us, it's always for the purpose of, of drawing us nearer to Him. I, love, I believe Susie Larson is the first person that I heard say, condemnation is, uh, conviction is not condemnation, it's an invitation to draw closer to God. And I believe that's what we're talking about here. We are ultimately, as women, responsible for our own hearts, um, and the Bible says, you know, the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. That's from Luke. And we're told to guard our heart because everything we do flows from it in Proverbs. And kids can be a trigger, absolutely. Their behavior can be a trigger. But as are, you know, a hundred other things, other triggers can be our own distractions or, you know, maybe a headache or exhaustion. And all of these things can trigger us to be cranky. So we, before we automatically pinpoint the kids, we've always got to examine ourselves. Because it, especially for women who are in the faith, the Holy Spirit is dwelling within you, and He is in charge. You know, the kids are not in charge of what kind of an attitude we get to have on any given day. So how closely are we actually tuning to ourselves, to our own hearts, to what God is speaking to us about? Because how we respond is always up to us. Sometimes the kids are going to drive us absolutely nuts, but how we respond is within our own control. It has nothing to do with them. So for women who have the Holy Spirit, cranky is not the only option we have other choices. And while the kids may not be the catalysts for a mom becoming cranky, you can find that the kids may be the recipients of said crankiness. So, and of oh, course, yeah. then you have what you point out are parental blunders that take yes. place. So are yes. there maybe some preventative measures or even some steps that can be taken in the moment that can maybe prevent these blunders from occurring? 
Oh, that's a great question. And, and I always like to encourage women to remember grace. We live under grace. And we are not going to do this perfectly every time. But the book, The Cranky Mom Fix, is filled with some practical strategies that we can put in place, sort of like guardrails, to ensure that we don't become cranky in those moments of frustration. After some practice, they, become, they come to us more naturally. Um, or how to really sort of clean up those moments when we mess it up. So I like to encourage women, first of all, one of my greatest strategies is a simple apology. For those times when we really have, have reached our max and we snap at the kids, apologies will draw our kids to understand Jesus in ways that we can't demonstrate otherwise. When we're humbling ourselves, coming before our kids, telling them, hey, I should not have behaved that way. I'm very sorry. I'm talking to God about how I can get better in this area. I want to develop more self-control. And here is what you can do to help me. And then empower the kids, not in, in any sort of way that suggests they are to blame for our behavior, but to help them understand we're a team and we're going to work on this together. So their part is to work on this behavior that triggered mom's response. Mom's part is to work on her self-control and her response, and can you hold each other accountable? When you make the family into a team environment, beautiful things can happen. When we look at our kids as the adversary, that's when we're going to have problems. Our kids are not the enemy. That is not our enemy, and so we need to remember we are a team. And then, as I explained in the book, we just go through a whole bunch of um, practical tips on how to live that out. But the first thing, is it's an attitude, understanding that our kids are not the enemy. Becky Kapitsky here on The Intersection. Learn more through the website crankymomfix.com. Well, this is The Intersection Podcast. It's a weekly production of The Meeting House, and you can find out more through meetinghouseonline.info or by visiting the programming section at faithradio.org. Through that homepage, you'll find a link to the Media Center through which you can listen to or download full conversations with recent guests featured on the Intersection podcast. You can also find the podcast in the Media Center or you can subscribe to it via iTunes. Through the Meeting House homepage, there are links to two blogs. One is The Three with three stories of relevance to the Christian community. The other is The Front Room with devotional thoughts and commentary from the Meeting House. And you can follow me on Twitter and access the Meeting House Facebook page. There's also a link to video content. Conversations with guests featured on the Intersection podcast can also be found through the Faith Radio app, as well as a variety of other apps. Learn more when you go to meetinghouseonline.info or the programming section at faithradio.org. Next on this edition of the Intersection Podcast, it's the president and CEO of Open Doors USA. His name is David Curry. He identified and analyzed areas of persecution of Christians in Nigeria. From that conversation, this is David Curry. It is something that's happened repeatedly in Nigeria. It's one of the most violent places for Christians, and that's partly because there are a lot of Christians there, and they're in they're in. Uh, the presence of Sharia law states within the northern parts of Nigeria. But to your earlier part of your question, when people think hear these groups, Boko Haram or the Fulani herdsmen, what they need to understand, the common thread is a radical form of Islam, which, which gives them, they feel, the right to attack others who might be considered apostates, Christians, they would say, are, are apostates, people who aren't believers. So they feel they have the right to attack. Now, Boko Haram is re- related to ISIS and al-Qaeda, and the Fulani are a sort of a tribal network. They, they see themselves as a law unto themselves, 
because they historically have lived in some of these areas. But the th theology is very similar amongst the two of them. And these two groups have been attacking the Christian communities in the north of Nigeria from all sides. The most recent of them, and it seems to be happening every two weeks right now, that we have a massive attack in in Nigeria. We had on May 18th, 17 Christians kidnapped by these extremists during the church choir practice. They were, they're, they're currently being held for ransom. This is a common practice in northern Nigeria that Christians would be uh, a ransom back. They're trying to raise money by using Christians. They also will kidnap Christian women, force them into marriage and under Sharia law. There's not a lot that can be done uh, by their families to get these women back. That's an all-too-common practice. So there's a lot of drama going on in Nigeria that, that, that makes it an area that we need to pay attention to and draw attention both for prayer, for people of faith, and also for, for our government to, to take action and take notice. This kidnapping element is something that you mentioned earlier. Elaborate on on what you're seeing and why they are doing this in this fashion. Well, we've, we've talked to some of these radicals who have since um, had a transition or conversion experience, and they would say, they would tell us at Open Doors and our researchers, part of our strategy as a, in Boko Haram was to sure that the the women uh, the daughters the wives of pastors we knew it was going to demoralize the church see that the strategy of the enemy is to isolate the church is to get us uh, so, so broken that we can't we can't stand up for the for the name of Jesus and that's part of their Boko Haram's tactic is to kidnap christian women force them into marriage or sell them into sex slavery and so women are the most persecuted group uh, around uh, Christian women because they are both Christians and they are women. So they're vulnerable in these northern states of Nigeria to the sex trade or to forced marriage or, or, or even just ransom back to the families. And as I understand it, Open Doors has become involved in a number of ways addressing this situation of persecuted Christians in Nigeria and specifically issues surrounding these these instances of kidnapping and sexual assault and persecution based on gender. I understand that there are some trauma counseling centers that Open Doors has established. Discuss those if you would. Absolutely. Whenever there's an, uh, an incident like this, we have trauma counselors that go that meet with the both the families that have been affected, the women who, if they're returned, if, if they come back, like with the Chibok girls you mentioned, we always meeting with those families, trying to make sure that they're having the ability to process through the, the, the trauma of what's happened. This is something we've just come across in the last 10 years, really. For the first 50 years of our, of our work, we didn't spend a lot of time on trauma trauma care, but we now see with the, the kinds of attacks that are happening against Christians, people need to have the ability to get together in a safe Christian community and talk about what's happening and what's happened and, and to see what God is doing to bring about restoration. David Curry here on The Intersection. The website address is opendoorsusa.org. This is The Intersection Podcast. Now to the Faith Radio Meeting House Media... This is The Intersection Podcast. Now to Faith Radio Meeting House Media Central in the Exhibit Hall of the 2019 National Religious Broadcasters Convention in Anaheim, California. 
former Air Force fighter pilot and chaplain Ron Bracey joined me. He is the author of the book, Walk On, From the Valley of Despair to the Mountaintop of Praise. He discussed some aspects of his life story, including the loss of his son as he fought in the War on Terror, as well as his being in the Pentagon on 9-11. Here now from that conversation is Ron Bracey. At the time I left the Air Force, uh, God took me out in a very strange way out of the Air Force and I went to seminary at the Southwestern Baptist Seminary in Fort Worth and one of my professors was a two-star general in the military Air Force chaplaincy and I've always accused him of covertly (laughs) recruiting me Uh, but it was there that I went back into the Air Force as a chaplain Uh, was stationed uh, many places uh, hot spots around the world Uh, being deployed there through uh, the Air National Guard, through the Air Force Reserves. And uh, interestingly enough, when I was assigned to the Pentagon, it was not as a chaplain. They hired me especially because of my operational experience. Mm. So the military chaplaincy is still a, a heart of mine, though. Sure. Well, tell me about the inspiration behind the book, Walk On. Actually, I had started the book before Todd was killed. Uh, but it was it was an academic book, you know, being a professor mm-hmm, and that. I was sure. writing the book from an academic standpoint. And then when this happened with Todd's death, uh, I actually didn't write for five years. And then God opened it up uh, as I was teaching and said, okay, it's time. And uh, so the book is totally different, I know now, but it's filled with true life stories of people who've experienced tragedy and difficulties. But the reason I chose Habakkuk is because he is a man, and I liken him as a prosecuting attorney with God on the Mm. witness stand. And he's challenging God with all of these questions about why is there evil in the world and why is there pain and suffering and why do you allow this, you the loving God, allow this to happen? And so... Habakkuk's story is as real today as it was in his day because all of chapter 2 is about corruption and greed and and, and government and education, false prophets within the church. And he just really doubts the sovereignty of God. In fact, God says to him, I'm going to tell you what I'm doing, but you won't believe me. And the reason was is because Habakkuk had God in a box. Mm. And we do that too. We, you know, if we don't, God doesn't answer us in the box that we've put him in, then we don't hear him. So it took those three short chapters for God to work his way out in Habakkuk's life to where the book actually ends with uh, the the prophet says, even though the fig trees don't blossom and, and everything is destroyed, yet through the strength of God, I will walk on mm. to the mountaintop. And, and the message of the book, and that's all I care about people hearing, is that God, we can walk on in the most difficult of circumstances with our hope in the sovereignty of God. And he is there for 